be in children's church there, getting taught. <coughs> I'm grateful for that opportunity they have. All the rest of us turn to John chapter 12. It's a blessing to have our Bibles, isn't it? What a blessing it is to be able to learn from them, be challenged from them. And I have something today to be a help to you uh, from the Word of God. Uh, from a young age, I knew that I had the key that unlocked the doors in people's minds. They even called me door key when I was a kid. They don't get any better than that, all right? So just enjoy what you get. We've been looking at different times in the Bible that Jesus had supper with different people. And uh, in this series, Suppers with Jesus, we've looked at two, several so far, and, and it's interesting how many times in the Bible that Jesus had meals with people. It's a, an incredible intimate time when you share a meal with somebody, and we've talked at length about how we become like the people we eat with the most and spend the most time with. And today, I'd like to talk about a text that uh, we see probably one of the strangest dinner, uh, times that Jesus had one of the strangest dinner scenes, if you will, in the Bible. For one thing, Lazarus was there. And not just a chapter before this, he had been dead. Right? When's the last time you had dinner with somebody who had been dead a short while before? This is an unusual thing here. Uh, John tells us that, I'm sure this dinner, by the way, was probably a thank you uh, for <coughs> all that Jesus did in raising him from the dead. It was a celebration uh, because the chapter before, that's exactly what happened. Uh, John tells us that Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus. In this supper with Jesus, we're going to learn uh, a couple of things about worship, and about our values. And uh, each one of these, we can learn some things, and that's what we want to look at today. Read along with me, if you would, starting at verse number 1 of John chapter 12. All right. Uh, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Therefore he made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment from, of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This said he, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. I think that's interesting. John is writing this, obviously, years later. At the time of this supper, no one knew Judas was a thief. No one, he, he still had pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, but John looking back said, by the way, he didn't say that because he cared about anybody. He said that because he was a no good rotten thief. That's in retrospect. Going on. Verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always have you with you, but me you have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. Help us to learn from this passage, not only uh, as we learn more about the story and more about the characters involved, but Lord, help it to apply to our lives specifically so that we might be better for you, we might have more of an impact, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene opens up here at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
uh, Jesus is about to have supper with them. And I want you to notice, first of all, as, as before we really get into the meat of the story, the activity of these three siblings, because everything that the three siblings are doing are needed in the local church. And it's important. They're very different from each other, but uh, everything they were doing is needed even in our local church. Every local church needs a Martha. Martha was a worker. The Bible says here, that there they made him a supper and Martha served. She was doing the same thing that she had done on a previous visit from Jesus and probably every time Jesus came, uh, she was bustling around and preparing a meal, making sure everything was right. Remember in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus was there and, and she had also cooked supper for him that night and she was out there preparing food uh, for, for all the disciples and Jesus that was there and she got upset with Mary. While she was doing all of this work in the kitchen, Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus just listening to everything he has to say. And most of us married men know that when a woman is working, you don't want to sit down, amen? So uh, that's what Mary did. She sat, da uh, sat down when Martha was working. And who likes to be working when other people are sitting around, amen? And so Mary Martha got upset. And she comes to Jesus. This is an amazing scene where she actually... She actually rebuked Jesus. She basically, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but this is the way I picture it, standing in the doorway, uh, Jesus, she's not doing anything, and I'm doing all this work. Tell her to come out and help me. Remember what Jesus said, Martha, Martha, thou art troubled. And uh, he said, uh, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. Martha was a worker, and praise God for workers, because we need them. If any work in the church is going to get done, it's going to be done by workers, amen? So uh, that's a good thing. But this time, she is out there working, and this time she doesn't say anything. She's kind of learned her lesson. She lets Mary be what she's doing, and she continues to do the work. Lazarus was a witness, uh, it emphasizes this in verse 9. Many people came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, we have no idea how long Lazarus had lived at Bethany, but probably his whole life. Uh, he had probably been a, a, an honest, upstanding citizen all that time, law-abiding. He probably went to the synagogue. He did everything he was supposed to do. Uh, now he had become a Jesus follower, and he knew Jesus personally. He had him out to his home, and this had been the case for most of Jesus' ministry. These were dear friends that, uh, throughout his whole ministry and a place for him to stay when he was in that area. But nobody made the two-mile trip out from Jerusalem to see Lazarus when he was just a Jesus follower. Uh, he, he, uh, they, yet now here they are. The Bible says there was people that came not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. And what made the difference? Because now he was a man living a resurrected life. He was a man living in the power of the resurrection. Until then, G Lazarus had been a genuine believer. Uh, I think he did the best he could. He was sincere. He was following Jesus. But he had not really been an exceptional witness for Christ. Now, by virtue of the life that he is living, uh, he was a witness. He didn't become a rabbi. He didn't go on the talk show circuit. He didn't open a Twitter account. He simply lived life, a resurrected life. Uh, and this was a a tremendous witness to those around him. People came from all over to see the miracle of the resurrected life that he was living. Imagine that conversation. What, imagine you're sitting down beside Lazarus, and uh, what, do you, what do you say to someone who's been dead and he's now living? Uh, what's it feel like? I mean, that's a question I have. 
I mean, you're dead, and then you're, wait, do you remember what happened while you were dead for those four days? Lazarus is sitting with these men at the table, and surely there's questions, and he might have said something like this, you know, I wasn't always this way. I, for years, I believed in Jesus, I followed Jesus, I did the right things, I said the right things, and I was genuine in my desire, but then one day I died. I died to everything, and I died to everybody. I was buried, I came to an absolute end of myself. Then Jesus came and he gave me new life, he gave me his life, and now I'm living a resurrected life. Now I could park here and we could talk about this at length because there's something intensely attractive about a person who dies to the old life and lives a resurrected life for Jesus Christ. Jesus brings people who are dead in their sins and he brings life to them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and you hath he quickened or made alive uh, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now we are new creatures. Old things have passed away. Why? Because we died to them just like Lazarus did. But we're not here to talk about Lazarus. We see that Martha was a worker. Lazarus was a witness. Look at Mary. She was a worshiper. She takes the center stage three times in your New Testament, and all three times she's sitting at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, she wants to hear the words of the Lord, that story of Mary and Martha I just referenced. In John chapter 11, she wants to experience the works of the Lord when he raised Lazarus. In John chapter 12, she desires to declare the worth of the Lord, as we'll see in this passage here. Every local church needs a Martha. Every local church needs a Lazarus. And every local church needs a Mary, a worshiper. We really ought to be all those things, is my point. And so, but at some point here during the supper, Mary, Mary did something surprising. In fact, people couldn't believe it, what they were seeing. It bothered their sensibilities. So much so that it appears in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But it seems here that Mary knew some things about Jesus or understood some depths that even his disciples didn't. It seems that she understands what's ahead for Jesus even more than those that are in his inner circle. Now, if you look back at the beginning of our passage that we read, we see the time frame here. It's Saturday night in Bethany. In just a few hours, Jesus will enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Remember the story of the triumphal entry. The palm branches are being ra uh, waved and people are cheering for him. Uh, uh, this is all going to happen in just hours from now. Uh, soon he will cleanse the temple. He'll curse the fig tree. He'll confront the rising tide of hatred in the religious leaders. More than likely, tonight is the last happy night he's going to know on earth. This night with these three siblings that he so dearly loves. As we view this supper in our mind's eye, we, our attention rests on two people, Mary and Judas. Mary never says a word, but she reveals her heart in what she does. Judas says too much, and he reveals his heart in what he says. What did Mary do? Look at verse number three with me again. Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out. Number one, this was not a dab. The Bible says she took a pound. Now, in this day... Perfume was important. It's before showers were invented. Amen? 
uh, it was before deodorant was invented. And deodorant is important. I think it's a good idea to wear two different deodorants, one under each arm, but that's just my two, that's just my two cents. Pick it up, people. Sense, get it? That's my two, okay. Moving on. Uh, so this was an important thing, and it was a valuable thing that they had. In fact, I, I read some uh, places, they didn't have bank accounts, they didn't have savings accounts, they didn't have, a lot of people didn't anyway, they would have these things of value, so really, this very well could have been their hedge against disaster. This could have been really uh, served as their savings account. So she brings it out, and maybe those that are watching think this is, this is appropriate, putting a few dabs of that on Jesus, sharing some of this great value with him. But it's not a dab. It's the whole thing. She brings the whole pound out. And then number two, she put it on his feet. This was a time that dealing with feet was considered unbelievably demeaning. One of the things that bothers people in reading the Old Testament, New Testament, is all the times that it talks about servitude or servanthood, and it uses the word slave. Now, understand that when the Bible talks about slavery, most of the time, and especially in the New Testament, it's not talking about the kind of slavery we think about in America's history and and what goes on in much of the world today. Uh, When it talks about uh, slavery in the Bible, it's usually talking about the Jewish person who fell into debt They couldn't pay the debt, and at that time, there's not that allowance to declare bankruptcy, and there was no government bailouts. They had to come up with some way to pay that debt, and so he had to go into servitude. And so in a sense that many times they would lose their rights, and they would have to uh, get basically farm themselves out, hire themselves out uh, to be a servant to pay off that debt. But the rabbis uh, made allowances for this, rightly so. They said, if you have a Jewish servant, there are things that... uh, This Jewish servant is not devoid of all of his rights. There are things you can't make him do. There's things that you can't demean him in. And uh, one of the things the Jewish rabbis said is that you can't even ask your servants to unlatch your shoes or to deal with your feet because that was considered demeaning. By the way, this is why the disciples in John 13 or the next chapter are going to be just absolutely horrified that Jesus would wash their feet. Remember, Peter said, you're not going to touch my feet. Remember that? Well, it's because this was a very demeaning thing. And yet, here's Mary. It's interesting that before Jesus washed feet, Mary washed feet with her perfume. Uh, and, And what Mary is saying with her actions there is, I know that even servants in our culture have rights, but I give up my rights. I know that even for servants, there's certain things you cannot ask them to do, but I I am willing to offer all of what I have and what I am. I'm not going to follow you uh, conditioned by control. I do not want control. I give up all my rights. There is nothing that you cannot ask of me. That's what she's demonstrating when she's doing this. She put it on his feet. Number three, she wiped it off with her hair. She let her hair down, literally. She would have to. To unbound her hair in public at that time was considered scandalous. Uh, really, as a matter of fact, the rabbis said that if a woman, un- if a married woman unbound her hair in public, that was, uh, that could even be reason enough for a man to divorce her. It was grounds for that. So when a woman would unbind her hair, this was a way of showing openness, a way of showing love. It had an implication of intimacy. This is something you should only do in private, at home with family members. That's what it meant in that culture. So she has already demonstrated, I am giving you, Jesus, everything that I have. Now she's telling him, I'm giving you everything that I am. 
She's holding nothing back. This is a tremendous demonstration. I'm not going to give you just control of everything I have and everything that I am. I'm going to do it willingly. I'm going to love you with all that I am and with all that I have. I'm not going to hold back anything in my life. And that's amazing. Oh, friends, how many of us hold back? Things that we don't allow God to have. Areas of our life that we don't surrender to Him. You know what she's actually doing? It's like the hymn that we just sang a few minutes ago, Take My Life and Let It Be. When she gave the whole pound, uh, that's like saying, Take my silver and my gold, nothing would I withhold. When she goes to his feet, she's saying, Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. When she lets down her hair, she's saying, Take my love, my Lord I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's what she was saying. Mary was willing to rebuild her identity around Christ. Uh, he, Jesus was more than just a preference for her. Jesus was her deepest delight. Psalm 34, 4 and 5, uh, 37, 4 and 5. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy ways unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. This is why Judas was upset, and others presumably. I imagine one of them thinking or asking, Judas sort of did in his question, where is your sense of proportion? You don't pour it all. A pound of... Have you ever been around somebody at work or worse off in an elevator who didn't know when to stop spraying the perfume or the cologne? I mean, they took a bath in it. It's overwhelming. And then it's no longer attractive. I, I'm a fan of cologne. I like cologne, but it becomes, there's a certain point, it's no longer attractive when it's too much. It becomes overwhelming. And this is really the problem. But Jesus, uh, with his reaction, shows her proportion is perfect. See, she demonstrates, I'm not going to respond to Jesus with any conditions. I follow him. I give myself to him. I, compl I completely and utterly and wholly commit myself to him. Can I tell you today, it is improper to respond to Jesus Christ conditionally. It's improper for us. See, there's a big difference between Mary and Judas. One sold Jesus. One was sold out to Jesus. One used Jesus. One was willing to be used by Jesus. I ask you today, which one, which category do you fall in? She poured out her greatest treasure in a lavish act of generosity can I tell you, genuine, genuine worship never counts the cost. Genuine worship is not intimidated by criticism or condemnation of carnal minds. Genuine worship has at its object the Lord Jesus Christ, and His approval is all that matters to us if we genuinely worship Him. And it leaves behind a fragrance that makes an impact on those around us. Judas put an immediate price tag on Mary's act of love. That's what carnal minds will do, by the way. They put a price tag on everything that we give uh, to the Lord. I, we, we've heard it. We, people talk about everything I do. Everything I do, I do, I do. And it's not about God as much as it is about them. It's the mindset of panic when your paycheck is an odd dollar amount. Oh, no. Do I cheat myself out of a, a half a penny or do I cheat God out of a half a penny? You know what I'm saying with the, the tithe? It's easy to do a tithe of $100 is 10, but a tithe of 111 is a little difficult, you know. So uh, how do we work that out? Uh, the, the, that's what carnality does. Carnality puts a price tag on devotion. Worship does not do that. 
Worship gives all that it can because the object of our love and our devotion is the one we worship, not ourselves. Spikenard that she poured here is an uh, is uh, the I looked up the definition. It's an aromatic essential oil derived from a flowering plant that I can't pronounce grown in India. So yes, even in the Bible they had snake. Uh, I'm sorry, essential oils even in the Bible. Uh, it was as John tells us very very expensive. A pound of spikenard was 300 denarii. That is nine months' salary at that time for a working man. It's hard for us to fathom. In today's terms, it would be like spending thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on a bottle of perfume. And who does that? And not only who does that, but who takes that great treasure and then pours it on somebody else's feet if they do have it? John says the fragrance filled the house. I'm sure it did. It better smell good for that type of money, amen? Uh, she gave an extravagant gift, and automatically, people around her thought that it was too much. But Mary's gift did not seem extravagant to her, because worship does not keep score. When we really love the Lord Jesus Christ, all that we want to do is as much as we can do for Him, and we're not keeping score. We're not trying to, we're not keeping a list of everything that we're doing, hoping that he notices all those things. We just want to worship. What did, why did Mary do this? Because she wasn't trying to make a statement about her wealth or anything like that. Do you remember that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead the day before, the week before, whenever it was, just a short time before? So this was a pretty significant occasion. When Mary saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead, Obviously, she and anyone else who was paying attention knew that Jesus was more than just a teacher. He was more than just a prophet. She knew that he had power and authority that could only come from God, and her gift did not seem extravagant to her at all. In the Old Testament, there are four groups of people that are anointed. There are kings, prophets, priests, and the dead. Jesus fits already three of these groups. Uh, king, he was a king, he was a priest, and he was a prophet. In a few days, he'll join the fourth when he dies on the cross. It seems that Jesus un or Mary understands Jesus better than those in his inner circle do. She did not come just to eat the meal. She did not come just to fellowship with the others. She came to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Her desire to honor Jesus moves her to violate, don't miss this, several customs of the day. You remember last week we talked about how Jesus upturned the customs of the day uh, to, to, to show who he was and what he was. A woman wouldn't normally sit at a man's feet, let her hair down in public, deal, uh, certainly wouldn't wipe a man's feet with her hair. But uh, So this was out of the ordinary. It was over the top. It was radical. It was total and utter devotion. G Judas objects, as many people do. Can I tell you that a lot of people don't like someone who's completely, 100% sold out to Jesus Christ. And so he objects with, about this. He says, why wasn't this money used to feed the poor? It's a practical question, isn't it? I mean, we look at that and, and automatically, man, think of all the good that could have been done with the money that's just been poured out on someone's feet. Jesus responds in verse number 7, and I love the words, let her alone. Can I tell you, friend, Every time you expend your resources for the Lord Jesus Christ to serve God, 
Every time you pour out your heart in honoring your Savior, you're going to hear two voices. Uh, there's always going to be a voice of opposition. There will always be those on the sidelines who are critical. Aristotle said criticism is something we can avoid easily by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. But if you decide to do something, say something, be something for God, you're going to see some criticism in your life. No matter your effort, even your successes, there's always going to be a voice, whether it be a church member, whether it be a friend, whether it be an acquaintance, a family member, there's always going to be a voice on the sidelines criticizing what you are doing. The tragedy in our lives today is that so many Christians listen to that first voice. They allow themselves to be discouraged because of that critical spirit. The truth is there's no real power in criticism. Can I tell you that again? You can learn some things from it. There's no real power in criticism. Mark Twain said it best. If there was any real power in criticism, the skunk would have went extinct years ago. Think about that. Have we been anything but critical of the skunk? Yet it still lives on. Why? Because there's no real power in criticism. You can criticize all day long. Just keep what you're doing for God. Do not be discouraged by the negative voices that are around you concerning your efforts. You just keep pouring yourself out. You keep on doing what you're doing for God. Uh, I like the fact that Mary never said a word. She just kept on honoring her Savior. You can measure a person by the opposition that it takes to discourage him or her. And she was not being discouraged. But praise the Lord, there's always a second voice. And this is what Jesus said. Let her alone. Let her alone. The negativity of do-nothing Christianity can drag down somebody that is doing something. And that's really what a critical person is. A critic is a nobody doing nothing, criticizing a somebody doing something. And I encourage you, friends, don't listen to negative voices. Just keep on going forward for the Lord. There are some people are so negative, if you put them in a dark room, they develop. Uh, just don't listen to them. Don't listen to negativity. The first voice says, you're wasting your time. It's not worth it. The second voice says, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The first voice says, you can't do it. The second voice says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me. The first voice says, you'll never be happy. The second voice says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Listen, friend, you'll always find two voices when you serve extravagantly like Mary did. Which voice are you listening to? He goes on in verse 7, Jesus does, against the day of my burying has she kept this. Now this comment, again, wouldn't make much sense at that setting in that time because the disciples didn't fully understand this till after the crucifixion. Mary is all in. She is fully committed. She does not care what others think. She hears the remarks that Judas is making, the others are making. It does not stop her. She is simply living out how she feels in her heart. Because extreme devotion always overflows. That's what the Bible says, my cup runneth over. A woman who would do that, who would do what she did, isn't likely to let the opinion of others stop her anyway. Amen. She was sold out for the Lord. This brings up another point. If our devotion to God never brings up any criticism, even from other believers at times, if we never hear that first voice of opposition or criticism, maybe, maybe we're playing it too safe. Maybe we're not as sold out as we think we are. If everything I do is acceptable in the world that I live in, then 
I probably need to rethink my Christianity because the world says that Mary was a fool to do what she did. Will the world ever say that about you? Ooh, mama, he's going from preaching to meddling, amen? <laughs> but we need that. That's a good question, isn't it? The world ever say that about us? That we are fools? It's through the foolishness of preaching that uh, the impact is made for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever anyone becomes extravagant in their worship, the devil stirs up trouble. It is not surprising that when Mary worships, Judas speaks up and tries to ruin the moment. It's as if Satan is trying to change the subject. Now, let me make a statement. I want you to listen carefully to this. This, this is so relevant to today. If he can't stop our worship, he'll get us to start arguing among each other, and soon that'll stop our worship altogether. That's why I don't get involved on online debates. It's amazing to me how people will argue about things. I got stuff to do, amen? We got things to, things to keep us busy, not to get caught up on getting online and this kind of argument because nothing kills doing like talking. And Satan wants to do that. He wants to get us arguing. He wants to get us talking instead of... Uh, that's what the whole thing that he had Judas doing there, trying to distract from what Mary was doing because he hates it when we pour our worship out at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he tries to sideline it. He hates extravagant worship. You remember what happened when the wise men brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, to the boy Jesus in Matthew chapter 2? The very next passage, Herod sets out to kill that ba all the baby boys of Bethlehem. He's simply saying, I I'm simply saying today, you sell out to God in your life and all the gates of hell will open up against you. Now, here's the fundamental difference between Mary and Judas. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. We see the different routes that that led to each one of them taking in their life. Uh, because Mary made her choice, Judas made his. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 makes it very clear that you can't love money and the Lord at the same time. The Bible says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and, and hate the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Wonder today, what choice have you made in your life? I like what Corey Ten Boom said, hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Because <laughs> he can take it, amen? It'll either hurt or we live open-handed to the Lord Jesus Christ and give everything. She gave everything. Have you given everything to the Lord in your life? Lord, it's all yours anyway. That's the way we ought to live. Now, is it nice to have good things? Amen. Does he allow us to have nice things? Amen. That's all good. But we need to live with understanding God can take it any time. And anything that we can't keep is not really ours anyway. We can lose all that we have, and we can do it so quickly. The men thought she was crazy to do what she did. But she was right, and they were wrong. Mary showed unrestrained devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the men were shocked when they saw it. Jesus made it clear that extravagant love is better than phony compassion. She did that evening, the Bible says that when she did what she did for the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's, a, there's an aroma that was everywhere in the building that night because it was a strong thing, it was a very valuable thing. And, and everyone that was in that room and probably everyone that was outside and people that were even, uh, even in the street outside probably got a whiff of that aroma. 
Because every time we sell out to the Lord Jesus Christ, every time that we give our all to Him, it's going to make an impact. People will notice the aroma of our devotion is going to make a difference. It can't help to. She did it for Jesus, but everyone benefited. Everyone got to enjoy the aroma of her devotion. Her gift honored Jesus, but it blessed everyone nearby. So it is with your life, my friend. Do you give off with your life the aroma of worship, the aroma of your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? I read a very interesting statement by a pastor recently. He said that people choose a church with their noses. Have you ever heard that before? He said they can smell the joy. I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, a lot of times, and I've talked to many people, in fact, I've talked to people that come here and ask them why they came and, and uh, what led them to stay here. And it's interesting, the answers I get. It's not always the, oh, the doctrine is solid. And that's a good thing, but that's not typically what first gets our attention, is it? It's the feeling of being home. It's the feeling of love among God's people. It's the feeling of fellowship that we have with one another. Why? We can smell it. We can we can feel it when we walk in the doors, can't you? You ever walked into a church and it was cold as ice? I mean, the temperature might be 70 degrees or whatever, but you walk in, you're just like, ooh, it's chilly in here. And people, people uh, the way they treat one another, uh, let's not have that at Bible Baptist Church. Uh, people choose a church with their noses. When joy is in the air, it brings with it the aroma of heaven, and that's what happened with Jesus at this supper. The same can happen in your life. Don't you let anyone take, take you back from your commitment for Jesus. Let your affections for Him be extravagant, as Mary's was. Mary loved so extravagantly. She made all the people there uncomfortable. And we're still talking about it over 2,000 years later. Why? Because it made an impact. And what you will do when you love Jesus extravagantly and you demonstrate it is you're going to make an impact too. Dear friend, what is your passion? Is it a person? Is it a hobby? Your bank account? <clears throat> Some toy? A collection of things? Those really are just interest, interests. And we should have a passion for the one at whose feet we lay our interests. Lord Jesus Christ. Judas was different. Look at verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag and bare what was put therein. Judas was living after the flesh. He wasn't even a true follower of Christ. I wonder if there's anyone under the sound of my voice today that's like Judas. You've been in church a lot. You know a lot about Jesus, a whole lot. But you've never made him your Savior. You've never made it personal. Judas would ultimately betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's five weeks' pay. Contrast that. He gave up Jesus for five weeks' pay. She poured on Jesus' feet nine months' pay. Devotion uh, is extravagant to the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we give Him up for such a cheap price. Isn't that something? Uh, Mary was willing to give so much to Him, Judas was willing to sell Him out for so little. What the world has to offer to replace Jesus Christ in your life is worthless. It's never going to count for much. In your life, the difference was that Jesus was the Savior of one and the acquaintance of the other. There's a lot of acquaintances of Jesus in our churches today. We need to make sure He's their Savior. This is what Mary learned in her supper with Jesus, to be wholly 
and totally and completely given to Him. Not holding anything back. Everything I am, everything I have, it's all yours. It begs the question today, are you following God conditionally or unconditionally? Are you using God? Are you serving God only as it profits you? As long as it's not too expensive? Hey, as long as I can still put my heart in other places? Are you serving God for your sake or His? That was the difference between Judas and Mary. He served God, Jesus for His sake. She served Jesus for God's sake, for Jesus Christ's sake. Who are we serving Him for? Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.